Welcome to Movie Moments, discussing the greatest movies of all time, plus all the newest films in theaters and streaming. Like us, rate us, share us. Here are your hosts, Mike Rags and Chuck Curry. Hey, we're back with another Movie Moments. Mike Rags and Chuck Curry exploring the world of movies via podcast on Spotify and Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts, Movie Moments. Chuck had a chance to talk to an author later on, uh, Opposable Thumbs, How Cisco and Ebert Change Movies. And uh, both Chuck and I are huge fans of Siskel and Ebert, not only their reviews and all that stuff, and as critics, but the show, all the shows, sneak previews at the movies, every concoction of what they did, um, and Chuck will get into it with Matt Singer later on. The ups and downs of those shows were more ups than downs, and they're, you can't deny the chemistry that they have, and we'll talk a little bit more about it later on in the show. Uh, plus, we're going to dedicate this show to one of the great television and entertainment minds of all time, and that's Norman Lear, who passed away this pa- past week at the age of 101. So we'll go through his career and talk about the influence that he had, not only on television, but on the world we live in. So that's call coming up. We'll we'll uh, bring in Chuck Curry. Did you have a good week? Uh, I haven't. Well, you know, it's debatable. I sort of hurt my shoulder blade. I have sort of inflammation in my rotator cuff, and I'm recovering from a respiratory uh, virus. Other than that, my life's been outstanding, Mike. All right. <laughs> uh, the big news this week is that uh, there is no, you know, what world do we live in where we're three weeks from Christmas and there's really no new movies that hit theaters at all. It's kind of a joke. Nothing gets released this week as we get ready for Wonka and Aquaman. And we've lamented time and time again about the not only dearth of great movies, but actually movies coming out in theaters but one movie that did come out for a day a couple of days ago we'll lead with in our movie news chuck and the abyss 4k in select theaters did pretty well it did it did five hundred and twenty thousand dollars that's a little bit more than a half a million uh one showing six o'clock uh eastern standard time around the country it aired one night only one show only which shows you there's actually um much to my surprise, which I love, there was a lot of interest in this screening, which makes you wonder why they couldn't really see Abyss 4K for at least a weekend, if not a week. Why only one show? Uh, that launch, that launched its digital release, which will be, uh, December 12th. I can think you could buy it on Amazon Prime or Apple. Those two streamers will carry it, I believe, for a fee. And then you can get the hard copy physical disc. Uh, Blu-ray, the first time ever in Blu-ray 4K. You'll also be able to watch it 2K in Blu-ray uh, on that same collection. That comes out in March of 2024. Now, James Cameron also promised uh, that you'll be able to see True Lies in uh, on on Blu-ray next year, and also um, Aliens, uh, which will be on Blu-ray. Yeah, which is actually. Well, I already have it on Blu-ray. Will it be a different Blu-ray? It'll be a different Blu-ray. It'll be a 4K Blu-ray. Mm. I think part of the lore of one night only, one show only um, lends itself and why it was so popular is hard to find this movie anywhere, Chuck, especially in that format and in that showing, the entire uncut version. I mean it's almost impossible to find it streaming or anywhere, and I think that lends itself to why people wanted to go to the theaters and go see it at 6 o'clock on Wednesday. But here's what's interesting about that story. The fact that people knew that that it was showing in theaters – tells you that most people probably get their news via social media. So they probably read it online um, because obviously there was no marketing campaign, no radio or television uh, commercials for that one showing. So uh, awareness somehow, some way got out and, uh, and it did well. You know, the other, other uh, story in terms of box office, you had uh, Beyonce's concert film Renaissance uh, did 21 million in business in three days, Friday, through Sunday. It's a very solid opening. It's not uh, what Taylor Swift's concert film did. Having said that, uh, 21 millions is, is, is a good opening for that. Uh, and then Godzilla minus one, which is a Godzilla Japanese product, opened to 11 million. That's a really good opening worldwide. It's done over 30 million. Uh, it's going strong midday. And that really tells me, Mike, because reviews are like 90% positive. I know a few people who went to see it. Thought it was awesome. Uh, leave Godzilla to the Japanese because that's really, uh, 
I, you know, when American Studios like Universal made these Godzilla movies, um, they put the money behind it. I just don't think there's enough storyline uh, to make it really fly well. I think it works much better as a Japanese product, to be honest. Hard to argue with that. I mean, even, you know, I remember back – do you remember back in the day when they released one in like the mid-'80s and actually Raymond Burr was in it? Um, and it was completely Japanese produced. They tried to Americanize it and it didn't work. I just – you're right. You're probably right. How many successful Godzilla movies, really successful Godzilla movies has there been in the U.S. Uh, that made you say, hey, I can't wait to watch that again? Not too many. Well, I got I got a question for you. Did you see the new trailer too with the, the uh, Godzilla vs. Kong? I did. What I do you did. Think? Yeah, I mean – I'll watch anything Rebecca Hall's in. Number A, uh, B, Rebecca Hall. Let's see. I mean, does, I mean, I don't know, Chuck. Uh, I my daughter had to remind me that I did actually enjoy the King Kong versus Godzilla movie. I completely forgot it came out a couple of years ago. Yeah, I mean, you I know why? Know. You know why? Because it was disposable. Uh, yeah, that's what I'm afraid. This one will be the same thing. I mean, it doesn't yeah. look like anything is going to make it stand out. Uh, I I don't know. It, 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 to me, that falls under the blanket of superhero movie. It, it's just it, – it's way, way overproduced and not for me, but we'll see. I, I, I think it's – I think there – I think here's the – I think the problem inherently is the concept on paper sounds intriguing, but then when you're actually producing and directing a two-hour feature uh, major studio release, I just don't think there's enough substance, and I, I think that has been yeah. the issue with these Godzilla movies. You know, in terms of some other box office news, of interest this weekend, uh, Disney, which now owns 20th Century Fox, going to release Die Hard in uh, a decent amount of theaters around the country. And also Love Actually is being re-released in a, a certain amount of theaters. Not a major release, but enough where people could seek out and find. I think, you know, people of this generation in our listening audience, if you've never seen, you know, John McTiernan's 1988 uh, action uh, classic Die Hard with Bruce Willis as John McClane on the big screen. Here's your chance. It's well worth seeing. It's one of the greatest action movies, if not the greatest pure action movie, according to myself and also Mike, ever released. Thoughts on and, that, Mike? Yeah, totally. And it is a Christmas movie, Chuck and I continually yes. will tell you. And remind people, you know, when people argue Die Hard is it a Christmas movie, let us not forget <laughs> Die Hard 2, also a Christmas movie. So if you you put them both together, why not argue for both? Not just the one. They are both Christmas I, movies. I, I would agree. And, I, I, you know, and as a franchise, I, I think the first four Die Hard movies are really, really, uh, really, really good. And, and I, th- I think the last one, you know, uh, is, is fairly terrible. But, Do you remember uh, the old, name of it? Uh, Live Free or Die Hard. No, no, that's the fourth one. <laughs> a Good Day to, a good day to, to Die uh, Hard. Yes, A Good Day to okay. Die Hard. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, which now looking back, it seems like a lot of his straight to video movies that came out the last 15 years as well. Um, that movie would link. I, I got right one last those. question. I got one last question before we move on from the Die Hard franchise. Uh, do you see a day where Disney 20th Century Fox reboots the original film and recast as John McClane? Yes or no? Absolutely, they will. Uh, much to our chagrin, but absolutely they will. Why would they step away from that? Go to a franchise. Uh, yeah, it's just, it, and, and it, it'll piss us off. We'll go see it. We won't like it. It'll piss us off that they probably make another sequel to it. I mean, it's all a cycle, Chuck. We know, we know what's going to happen. Uh, it's just a question as to when. It'll probably star, uh, uh Gerard Butler will be, you know. No, 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 no. That's not going to that, That's not, that's not going to happen. Now listen, do I think they should ever reboot Die Hard and the John McClane character? No. I mean, I think you could, I think you could reboot the name Die Hard with a new character, but John McClane should – the legacy of John McClane should be Bruce Willis because I don't think anybody could top what he did with that character. Having said that – What comes out next week? What comes out next yeah. week, and is it Gene Wilder? No. So that's all you need to know about yeah, does Hollywood I consider know. these characters sacred. They don't. No, I understand. They, they don't. They don't. All right, what other movie news you got? Uh, Tim Burton's Beetlejuice 2, uh, rap production. I believe it'll come out this summer. Michael Keaton reprises his role as, uh, the ghost with the most Beetlegeist. Uh, Jenna Ortega, I guess, will lead the film when order writer. Uh, and I think, 
No, the the the, the Catherine O'Hara's in it, right? Catherine, Catherine O'Hara. O'Hara's in it. Yeah. Oh, that's who I was saying. Catherine O'Hara also in it. Uh, I guess uh, according to Burton, all effects are practical. It'll feel a lot like the original film. You know, it's interesting. I was telling somebody, you know, think about this. Michael Keaton, who we both love, you know, got a chance to reprise uh, his Batman Bruce Wayne character in The Flash, which he was just nominated for a Saturn Award. I guess it was a sci-fi uh, mm-hmm. award for Best Supporting Actor. Um, and now he's going to play Beetlejuice. I mean, that's actually pretty cool if you think about Beetlejuice was produced in 1988, Batman 89, you know, to get a chance to play those characters again in 2023, 2024. It tells you that Michael Keaton still uh, is a very, very well-respected, popular talent. Right, let, me ask, let me ask you this then. Sure. If he, could do, if he could come back and reprise one other role, what would you want him to reprise? Wow. You tell me off the top of your head. Uh, Gung Ho. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it, he really, he's no, so I mean, good I, and everything. Yeah, he's, he's, he's Mr. Good in Mom, everything. maybe Mr. Granddad. I don't know. Maybe, maybe. I don't but, know. Uh, he, but l- listen, I, I, I personally, and I know the Flash put a kibosh on that, the box office, not the quality, because I still think the Flash was uh, a terrific entertainment. I stand my ground. Some other movie news of interest, uh, NPR. Uh, uh, announced that uh, Killers of the Flower Moon director Ma- Martin Scorsese was here. Uh, best movie of the year, they gave it. Now, of all the, the last 10 years of best movies that they've given, only Green Book has won- gone on to win the Oscar for best picture. You're going to get a slew now, Mike, in the next few weeks of all these uh, 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 entities giving out their best of the year. Um, and I was, we failed to mention this, the uh, Academy Awards this year, Jimmy Kimmel will be hosting yep. for the fourth time. You listen, he's a solid, safe bet. I understand, you know, he's the same network ABC as the Jimmy Kimmel show. I think he's a good pick. I, I have no issue with that so, uh, whatsoever. And I will, I will implore the Academy once again, Yeah. Um, nominate Taylor Swift for something, anything. Get her there, and maybe even Beyonce, too. And they can both perform. You want numbers, you want ratings, you won't get them unless you nominate Taylor Swift. I think it's a good idea. Uh, one other bit of movie uh, news, Zack Snyder's Rebel Moon, which originally the storyline was pitched as a Star Wars movie. Um, they rewrote it as a uh, original property, Rebel Moon, which will air on Netflix December 21st. It's two parts. The second part will air April 19, 2024. Uh, it was screened in England. A lot of people really dug it. It got somewhat of a polarizing reaction by some. But overall, the reaction was really good. They said it was terrific. World building had great action sequences, good characters. Um, you're looking forward to this property, Mike? What's this now? It's called Rebel Moon. I knew you'd have that reaction. Here's the thing with Zach. Here, here's the thing with Zack Snyder. Uh, he has a huge fan base, but then he has others like yourself that, ah, you know, it's Zack Snyder. So yeah. um, it's just a style I'm not into. That's all. I, he, he, I, I don't. But but here's the thing. Let's just say, you know, they spent two hundred million dollars on this right. and it's going to air exclusively on Netflix, which to me brings a tear. It brings a, literally as we speak, as I speak, a tear down my left eye. Uh, yeah, because it should play in the theater. No, it sh- it should. No, it everything should. I, I'm with you there. Don't you know? And I do okay. like some Zack Snyder stuff. <sighs> and I don't like how he, you know con the public into expanding his Batman v Superman saying it's different, but whatever. Don't get, you know, uh, it's the same movie, just longer. Uh, anyway. No, no, it's, it's bad. It's no, definitely it's, it's just better. Longer. It's just and longer. Listen, listen, Zack Snyder's 2004 uh, Dawn of the Dead is a terrific. No, it is. Terrific, it is. Maybe his best film. Maybe it his is. best film. It is, because it's not like, it. it is. It's his darkest movie that's not dark. That's why I like it. True. You know? It's that's why I like it. It plays. I don't like dark movies. You know this. We're 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 hashing up old arguments. Anyway, I got what I, else I you got, got one. one you I got, got one this, more because this, this is your yeah, third one more. Yeah, one more. This week in movie history, uh, 1984. This week, Beverly Hills Cop uh, expands. It, it it opened in uh, nationwide. It was it played for a week in Los Angeles, then it opened nationwide. One of the great audience participation films of all time. I think I saw it nine times in a movie theater. You know, we talked about Candy Cane Lane. And also, you know, not only do we feel Candy Cane Lane with Eddie Murphy was at best mediocre and basically content, not really a real movie, but it had the highest 
streaming audience in the history of Amazon Prime. Uh, even more people than c- Coming to America Part Two. Well, look at him, his, right? uh, I mean, even his properties on Netflix uh, mm-hmm. uh, did well. Uh, the guy is Teflon. He he always was. And, you know, even when he was making bad movies in the eighties, people still went out to see. And you know, Harlem Nights is not a good movie, but it made a ton of money. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's it, he's he's the best. It's funny too, is because Beverly Hills Cop should have had Die Hard's release date, and Die Hard should have had Beverly Hills Cop's release date. Would you agree with that? Probably. Here's, right? here's Yes, but here, here's what's really interesting about the original Beverly Hills Cop. It actually was a number one grossing film released in 1984. And when you think about 1984 and Beverly Hills Cop was released in December, 84, Summer, Ghostbusters, Gremlins, Karate uh, Kid, Indiana yeah. Jones and the Temple of Doom. I mean, it goes to show you an R-rated movie with Eddie Murphy sold more tickets than those films I just mentioned. In you know, rewatching that, that movie, pretty too. incredible. Rewatching that movie too, and, and you know, there's some scenes in a, in a strip club too. <laughs> it 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 plays more like a PG-13 movie. Yes, I agree. You, you I know, would agree. It, there's a few f bombs. Yeah, but uh, it, it, it's it's tamer than you remember. The second one is a little more grittier than the first one, to be honest with you. Um, mm-hmm. Let's move forward. Now, coming up, Chuck Chuck had a chance to talk to the author of Opposable Thumbs: How Cisco and Ebert Changed Movies. Uh, Matt Singer, that interview in just a bit, but we couldn't do a show without honoring maybe the greatest TV mind, especially sitcom TV mind of all time, and that's Norman Lear, who made it all the way to 101, believe it or not. In fact, it wasn't a couple of years ago, a great documentary, if you can find it, by Judd Apatow, where he talks to Norman Lear, Mel Brooks, Dick Van Dyke, Carl Reiner, um, and Carl passed away too, and talk about how these guys were still very active in their later years. So if you can mm-hmm. check that out, please go find that. But of course, I mean, when you think of Norman Lear, you think of the seventies and you think about all the great sitcoms, Chuck, that he was responsible for. And it really all starts with the most iconic TV show, perhaps of our generation. And that's all in the family. Listen, uh, there's a saying that throughout history of television, that certain shows had edge. No show had more edge. Then all in the family, which ran from 1971 to 1979. And, you know, I was, I was, um, reflecting on some of the shows that he did. And there was an episode, which we've talked about on the show before of all in the family, which aired, uh, in, uh, in 19, I think it was 1975. It was called Edith's 50th birthday. And that, that script. For that show was an original. The original idea for that show, uh, that script, that episode was supposed to air. Actually, All in the Family was '77. Was aired in 1975. Uh, one day at a time. This storyline was supposed to be meant for that show, and they didn't produce it. So they produced it for All in the Family, where Edith's 50th birthday, and an intruder winds up in her house, and he appears to be a nice guy, but ultimately, Mike, he is David a rapist. Dukes. Yes, David Dukes, and he, the actor, yeah. And what a, an amazing performance by that actor. When you watch this episode, and it was filmed before a live audience, and all those shows in the 70s were filmed, for the most yep. part, before a live audience. And the thing that made this episode surreal, uh, edgy, funny, scary, psychologically, unbelievably powerful, is that they dared to do something completely different with the sitcom. And the stakes were real. And the audience was on the edge of your seat. Uh, the live audience was laughing when they probably shouldn't have laughed because I don't think they knew how to react to that material. And Gene Stapleton was incredible in that episode. Yeah. Yeah. And as good as Carol O'Connor was on that show and he was iconic, she was equally iconic as either, either bunker, but that episode, Edith, 50th birthday, which aired in two parts, was an incredible, uh, dare I say, ballsy piece of television that would never see the light of day on network television. Oh, now. No. Never, never. Ne- they no. wouldn't touch it. They wouldn't touch it. Well, the, the legend of Archie Bunker in that show is not only the show, but what it spawned, whether it be Maud, which mm-hmm. was a great show with uh, – B. Arthur, which ran a few years, 72 to 78, but also uh, uh, the Jeffersons, for crying out loud. We had two Jeffersons on All in the Family, but Sherman, Sherman Hemsley took it to a whole other oh. level. 
a whole other level, even that, on, show, on the family itself. And then yes. when he had his own show, if you were going to tell right. somebody, watch one episode of All in the Family, and it'll encapsulate what the show is about. Do you have one that to me it's when uh, Sammy Davis Jr. Yes, that I would stands say out. the Sammy Davis Jr. one is iconic. I, I thought I, I tell you one also I thought was great, and they're all terrific. The the one where uh, the Ku Klux Klan wants to burn a cross on his son-in-law Mike Stivick's lawn. I thought that really got you got to know the Archie Bunker character. Where yeah, he said horrible things, but at the end of the day, his heart was always in the right place. But what a thought-provoking show! And the difference between a lot of the Norman Lear stuff, whether it be All in the Family, The Jeffersons, One Day at a Time, which was also a terrific program. Good 1975 times. 1975 to 1984. Yeah. Yes. Good Times, which is a show that I I watch religiously. 74 uh, to 79. Yeah. Which also, you know, the, here's the thing. If you take iconic uh, sitcoms like Friends, right, or Seinfeld, those shows made you laugh. Big Bang Theory had immense popularity in this generation, and they were funny shows. But the difference is the Norman Lear stuff not only made you laugh, I mean, but it made you think. And, it, and when I say think on a very deep level, the characters, the actors were terrific. The shows went for more than last year. They were trying to present a social commentary. And Norman Lear, Mike, at the end of the day, was a game changer. He changed the culture. And the 70s was a different time period than almost any time period we'll see in the history of television because it dared to have edge. The networks took chances. Producers and creators like Norman Lear had big ideas in the scope of their idea was put on a canvas that was allowed to breathe in a really interesting way. And again, these shows not only made you laugh, but they made you think. And the social commentary is relevant today. These shows hold, stand the test of time. Um, again, all in the family, Jefferson's, uh, good times, one day at a time, one, one day at a time. And also he, um, adopted uh, Sanford and Son. Yep. He took uh, over he that created, show, yeah. but, he, yep. but he adopted it. And, you know, it was interesting when I was uh, looking at, at some notes on these shows. In terms of Stan- Sanford and Son, Red Fox, Mike, was 40. Uh, he was 48 years old when he did the <laughs> show. And, he, and he's playing 65. He had – he and, and it wasn't with makeup. He had he, – he, had, uh, he lived a hard life, and he looked well, a lot let, older than he was. Let's not forget Carol O'Connor – during yeah. the heyday of uh, of uh, All in the Family, he was what forty seven years old during that. Yeah, day. I mean, look he, much older, much 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 older, much older. Much older. Uh, and, and and do you think about how Norman Lear tapped into the minds of African Americans and and the last that he would got that means hire great writers, uh, develop a great cast. I mean, I mean, you talk about Good Times, Jeffersons, uh, uh, and Sanford and Son. You wouldn't picture a guy like Norman Lear was the one that developed all those shows and got them on TV. He he spanned race. He spanned he uh, he uh, 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 any kind of cultural bias. He was just incredible. He was also behind, you know, he also helped out Facts of Life, Silver mm-hmm. Spoons into the 80s as well. Uh, he helped executive produce 227, um, another popular show in the mid 80s. Uh, again, the guy knew what he was doing, and he tapped into some movies too, Chuck. Not many people know he was the executive producer of The Princess Bride. Uh, he did also executive produce Fried Green Tomatoes, and he was actually nominated for an Oscar uh, for Divorce American Style. He was uh, he was a nominee for Best Writer with Robert Kaufman way back in 1968. Uh, wow. You, you, you made, uh, that, that's a Dick Van Dyke movie, if you don't remember, but – so he did get nominated uh, for an Oscar as well as he's not, he doesn't have an EGOT, but he's got an EO uh, at least. Uh, the guy is just unbelievable. And again, uh, up until what it was a couple of years ago, he teamed up with Jimmy Kimmel and they yeah. reproduced in front of a live audience uh, some of the iconic shows. Now I wish they would have, you know, I wish they would have came up with original stories, same characters, different actors, instead of just reproducing an old show. Right. But those shows were successful. People did tune in, and you, get, mm-hmm. you got some interesting performances from a Woody Harrelson and Jamie Foxx as well in front of a live audience. Yeah, uh, yeah, Woody Harrelson, Jamie Foxx. Uh, interesting. Uh, that was very interesting stuff. You know, and let's just go back real quick to one day at a time. Bonnie Franklin, uh, great show, was, uh, and, and Pat Harrington played the characters Schneider, Schneider Mackenzie Schneider, yeah. Phillips, Valerie Burton area. 
Burton Ellie. That show dealt with uh, teen pregnancy, uh, drug drug use. Uh, again, these shows were ahead of the, the forward thinking ahead of their time, not to take chances on the reality of of, of real life. You laughed, you thought. Uh, it really was, and the reason we're spending time talking about him because this man Norman Lear really was a tremendously talented visionary uh, creator, and uh, his life should be celebrated. Absolutely, and one of the other things we we're talking about is because of the memories, right? I, I remember coming home from school and mm-hmm. watching uh, Alice in One Day at a Time in the middle of the day, you know, reruns. But right, I, that's right. how I watched One Day at a Time. I still to this day, if I see a guy with a lot of who's got a lot of keys and he throws them on the table, I'm like, who are you, Schneider? And it's yeah, just, yeah. You know, it, it, it's iconic that that role played, and uh, uh, it could have just been a throwaway show. You know, Bonnie Franklin, and but no, you, you hit it on the head. It really covered some major subject matter and some funny people around it. It wasn't just, you know, a special a special episode of the week kind of thing. These these were funny shows. These are laugh outs. Out, and it doesn't get a funnier look. You think of the Jeffersons, right? The oh, Jeffersons, some might argue, have bigger laughs in their 253 episodes than all in the family. I mean, the way Sherman Hemsley rolls around, runs around on that show and That's what he funny. does with those characters. And yeah. the first time, listen. We didn't see too many interracial couples on TV. Not no. until you know Roxy Roker and and you know Franklin Cover. They were yeah. married yeah. on that show. The Willises. Yeah. I mean, that's and, iconic. And the, and the way he bounced Sherman Sherman Hemsley's George Jefferson bounced off. Oh my Those gosh. two characters was was incredible. Social and risque. Because really, what you did, like it, it, what they did with that with the, the Archie Bunker character. With, with the George Jefferson character, it was sort of a, a reflection in the mirror. Do you see yourself in this person or don't you? Right. Yeah. And and right. and that and they didn't tell you what to think, but you thought one way or another. And those and those shows worked on multiple levels depending on on who you were watching it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Marla Gibbs is Florence. I mean, so, oh, so awesome. The, the just 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 great stuff. Well, speaking of great TV, Chuck, and and we'll miss Norman Lear for sure. Let's head into this interview. Opposable Thumbs: How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies, and I would say changed some TV as well. And we started out as a little show in Chicago with two, one from the Sun Times and one from the Tribune, sitting down and 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 arguing about movies. And it just kind of once they got the thumbs up and thumbs down, it went to another level. You know, you could fall down that rabbit hole and never get out of it if you just watch one review on YouTube. Yes. You will be hooked for the next two hours just watching old 80s reviews of movies and whether they liked it or didn't like it. But it wasn't until they got the thumb that it really they turned them into, uh, you know, household names and iconic stature. Yeah, I mean, I talked in the interview. Hopefully, when people listen to this interview, they'll go on YouTube and watch some of the classic uh, episodes of Siskel and Ebert. It, it, uh, and I, as I said to Matt, not only did it recollect for me a lot of memories, but it felt like a time capsule yes. of me remembering just yesterday. It felt like it felt like yesterday. So it's a good and, interview. I think people will enjoy it. And you can get, uh, you can find on YouTube old uh, uh, reviews of Halloween and Star Wars, and I'm mean, getting go way back, way and way Rocky back. And, Rocky, Rocky and Rocky yeah. and, and Jaws, and 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 I, you know it's interesting. Some of the, some of the, the the movies you think they would give a massive thumbs up, they one of them winds up giving a thumbs down, and vice versa. Uh, it's it's really interesting stuff. No, I, I still too- I still remember finding. Ebert's review talking about E.T. and he actually said in the TV he uh, and this was way back in 82 right. he actually said I, I now know it was what it must have felt like to see Wizard of Oz for the first time in the movie theaters I'm like holy yeah. crap he nails yeah. it I mean he nails he, he knew how great that movie was uh, it's just fascinating stuff so why don't we go to Matt Singer now and Chuck talking about opposable thumbs how Siskel and Ebert change movies on the line a very special guest Matt Singer editor and film critic of Screen Crush. Matt wrote a book called Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. Uh, how you doing, Matt? Pleasure to have you on the program. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Well, I, I got to tell you, I, I got to, by, by, by certain chance, a few weeks ago, I was changing the channels, and I happened to stumble on the CBS Morning Show, and I caught uh, the host interviewing you on your book, Opposable Thumbs, uh, the story of Siskel and Ebert. And I said to my wife, I said, look, uh, somebody wrote a book on Siskel and Ebert. And uh, I, I was very, uh, un- uh, very actually happy that somebody did that because growing up in Brooklyn, New York, 
I was always big fans of Roger Ebert and, and Gene Siskel. I remember uh, when I was a kid, it had to be back, I'm 57 years old, it had to be back in the late 70s where I believe I caught on the PBS station, probably it was WPIX at a cha- Channel 11 out of Brooklyn, New York. Uh, well, that's when they were syndicated, but on a PBS station back in the day, I think I remember seeing their early review of John Carpenter's Halloween. And I was sort of perplexed that two people would be on a, uh, on, on a station talking about film the way they did. And as the years went on, I was a, certainly a core supporter of their program. I was a huge, huge fan throughout their entire run. And the show has gone, went through many different stages. And I want you, I just want to set the stage first and say to you, how do you get interest in writing a book? about these two. And I just want to preface before you start, our producer just has never heard of Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert. And sadly, the reality of history, a lot of people who are teens in their 20s maybe never did. That's why I think your book is a great thing. So how do you get the idea to write this book? Well, I'm a few years younger than you, but not that much. And, um, you know, and uh, I grew up in suburban New Jersey, not in Brooklyn. But, you know, a similar sort of fascination with the show as a kid. Uh, you know, I was watching the show in the early 90s was when I really fell in love with it and became, frankly, obsessed with it. And that was when they were, uh, yeah, in syndication. Um, that was when the show was called Siskel and Ebert. The show had different names through the years. Um, it was syndicated. May have been on Channel 11, WPIX. I, I think at that time it, it was on, the show was syndicated on Channel 5, the Fox station okay. here. Um, okay. That's what I remember. And um, But that's the reason to write the book was I loved the show as a kid. Um, uh, at the time, I didn't even really know that much about movies. This was the thing that taught me about movies. This is how uh, I fell in love with movies and with movie criticism was Watching this show, watching Siskel and Ebert, watching them uh, talk about movies, fight about movies, argue about movies, recommend little movies that I had never heard of, older movies that I had never seen. And I just became totally um, fixated on it. And it was the thing that really got me interested in becoming a, a writer, a film critic, studying film in college. And so at a certain point when I started writing books, um, and I was looking for a subject, uh, you know, uh, it was the sort of thing where it was like, how has there not been a book about Siskel and Ebert? Obviously, Roger Ebert was a pretty prolific writer, and he did write a memoir about himself, but uh, mm-hmm. that book, it has some stuff in it about Siskel and Ebert. It has maybe three short chapters in a 300, 400-page book. It's not the Siskel and Ebert book. It's the Roger Ebert book. It's the story of his life from his perspective. And so I thought that there could be a book about specifically the two of them together, their relationship, their show, the influence they had, the relationship they had, the, the famous uh, fights they had, and the, the great movies that they helped promote and champion, all that sort of stuff. And so that was the reason to, to do it. And if some younger people don't know them, then, yeah, it's all the more reason to uh, have the book out there, and maybe they can discover this incredible uh, show and this kind of uh, thing that was, for a, a couple of decades, was a, a really a huge fixture in popular culture. I, I, I agree totally. And I'll tell you another story. You know, post-COVID, I, I find my life much more reflective than it's ever been. And, uh, you know, a few months ago, I started to binge watch a lot of stuff on YouTube. And the first thing I started to watch, I was curious uh, about um, Andy Kaufman. And I went on YouTube and I started binge watching a lot of stuff of Andy Kaufman and his appearance on David Letterman and Jerry Lawler feud, and I and I and I when I watched it, it was like you know they say things about memories how you know the best part of life is memories, but it was like a time capsule that felt to me like yesterday. And then I said to myself, you know, let me start binge watching some of the some, some of the Siskel and Ebert shows. So I I went on and I must have watched dozens and dozens of their repeat shows that are archived on YouTube, and to me. It felt not like 20, 30 years ago, but it felt really like yesterday. And to see the two banter and argue and give their opinion on film really captured 
in my mind, a terrific memory because they were a huge part of um, America's pop culture, certainly in the 80s, uh, 90s, and the early 2000s. So let's just talk about how they got the show. Now, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. There was a man named D.C. McCarter who ran a public, a PBS station in Chicago, who sort of got the idea, I think it was in 1975, to do a dueling critic show on PBS. Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert were working uh, at two rival Chicago newspapers, Gene Siskel at the Tribune and Roger Ebert at the Chicago Sun-Times. Tell me about uh, D.C. McCarter and how he got the idea to put these two on the air. Well, it's, it is sort of an interesting story, and it's a big part of the book is actually the, the, the creation of the show. And what's sort of interesting, given that this show, um, if you remember it, was this uh, show where, yeah, the whole thing was based around disagreements, different points of view, these two guys debating movies and arguing about movies, seeing things from different perspectives. There's actually a, a, a lot of different perspectives and disagreement about the show itself and about how, <clears throat> how it was made, how it came together. And one of the biggest disagreements is about who created the show um, and whose idea it originally was. And, you know, it's sort of a Rashomon situation where a lot of different people want to say that they were the ones who created the show. One of them is Bill McCarter, who was the head of the Chicago public television station, WTTW, where the show mm -hmm. was created and first aired. And he always said, yes, it was his idea to have some sort of show about movies, dueling critics, reviewing movies. Another person who was very instrumental in the creation of the show uh, is a gentleman by the name of Elliot Wald, who was the original uh, producer of the original pilot of what became Siskel and Ebert. At the time, it was called what, Opening what? Soon at a Theater Near You. Right. And uh, there's, other, there's others, too. I mean, I, I spoke to a gentleman by the name of Nick Aronson, who knew Roger Ebert, had worked with him on radio, and claimed that he had pitched an idea basically like this, a little different, but would have had Roger Ebert as the central figure of a show that was reviewing all kinds of stuff, movies and operas and concerts, and they would have had a rotating cast of other critics, and on the weeks where they reviewed movies, he thought it should be Gene Siskel, and he brought this idea. He said to Bill McCarter and WTTW, and then didn't really hear much back, and then a few months later, he was looking in the newspaper and saw that they had a show called Opening Soon at a Theater Near You with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert. And he uh, he feels like he kind of was a, an instrumental part in the creation of it. But that was that's the place. Those are the sort of the main key players who were all involved in the beginning of the show. And I think it's probably one of those success has many fathers situations right. where it was a great idea. And I don't know who was the first person to say it out loud or write it down, but it was the right time and the right place and eventually the right uh, stars. They didn't, they weren't great right off the bat. They were kind of terrible to, at the beginning, to be honest with you, but they really, eventually they figured it out and um, turned it into this. Yeah, it was uh, basically like for a quarter century, the, 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 the biggest brand in, um, in, talking about movies, essentially. So they had a, a working relationship for 23 years. They reviewed over 3,000 movies in different incarnations of the uh, the program. Now, you tell me if I'm wrong, because after reading your book, I, 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 I got to tell you, when I read your book, I read it in four days. And because I was so familiar, and I like Siskel and Ebert so much, it sort of played out in my mind like a Shakespearean tragedy to the respect of this, that when you got to the point in your book when Gene, and we'll get to this as we go on, when Gene was diagnosed with brain cancer and ultimately three years later when Roger was diagnosed with cancer, a sadness set in in my mind that really stood with me for when I went to sleep that, that, that night, you know, thinking about uh, basically two guys who hit lightning in a bottle. And, you know, in 1975, because you point this out in your book, Jaws came out and it became the first summer blockbuster. And people started to look at movies differently in terms of mainstream appeal. 
And I found what was interesting in your, in your book when Siskel and Ebert went on the air, because a lot of the show was scripted. The two men were very, very perfectionist. I would say very different uh, in many instances, but they were both perfectionists, and they wanted to get things right. And they always asked the studios for, for specific film clips to review the film because they were very perfectionistic. Uh, expand on how they got the film clips and why that made the show very popular because it was hard to watch. This is pre-internet. You couldn't go on YouTube. You couldn't watch trailers. So when they, when they taped the show and they had these exclusive clips, it really drew in the public and the show gained in popularity and affiliates, especially when it was named Sneak Previews. Expand on that, Matt. Yeah, I mean, in, you, you do have to kind of think about uh, this different world about 40 to 50 years ago that was totally different than it is today. You know, uh, today, if you want to look up a trailer for a movie, almost any movie that has ever existed in history, you can do it pretty easily with ju- just typing a few, you know, words into a website. You could probably do it on your phone, wherever you are in the world. Um and that is the, you know, that is the opposite of the world that this show was created in. There was no internet, there was no personal computers, there were no smartphones, and there really wasn't anywhere to get that sort of information or see those sorts of things on television. Certainly not, uh, you know, uh, regularly. There wasn't a central place for it. And that was really in the very beginning the main appeal of the show, even more than Siskel and Ebert at the beginning because they weren't that good in the beginning. It took them a while to really get their act down and figure out how to relate to one another on camera and become this really compelling TV duo. In the beginning, the real appeal was um, this place where you could see scenes from the new movies that were playing in theaters. And you're right. It was um, this really big, crucial time in the history of movies, you know, right before uh, the show came on the air, and when Siskel and Ebert were first writing for their respective newspapers, that's you know what we now call the New Hollywood era, this period where all of these exciting young filmmakers were being given opportunities in Hollywood. Folks like Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola and Peter Bogdanovich and Al Ashby and Robert Altman, and they were doing really exciting things. And then that sort of transitioned into, yeah, the, the days of these early summer blockbusters and films like Jaws and Close Encounters and Star Wars. And so movies were, you know, certainly movies are still popular today. Uh, they, you know, some movies still make a lot of money today. But at that time, movies were so central to popular culture and yes. uh, much more sort of important to the, the conversation, I would say. And TV was certainly pervasive, but it was a different thing. It was sitcoms. It was game shows. It was... It was, you know, there wasn't uh, HBO, there wasn't these incredible uh, series that we, you know, streaming, anything like that. And so they had these incredible movies to talk about, and yes, they would, uh, actually the show would make their own clips. They would take the prints of the movies, the physical film prints of the movies, and they wow, would uh, they would make their own clips for them and then show them on the show. And so they had this incredible... A uh, selling point that nobody else at the time had, and it was really important to the early success of the show. Uh, again, on the line with Matt Singer, who has a new book, Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. I highly recommend the book for the listening audience. It has a lot of tidbits, tidbits behind-the-scenes stories, a lot of fun facts. I, I got one fun story in the book uh, that, I, that I found really amusing, and it was Gene Siskel's fascination with the movie Saturday Night Fever, which came out in 1977. Uh, he wound up seeing the movie 17 times, knew it better than the director, John Bannum, and wound up buying John Travolta's suit from the movie at auction in Brooklyn, New York, for $2,000, and then le- later resold it for a substantial profit many years later. Tell me about that story. Yeah, Gene Siskel uh, was, for whatever reason, uh, and it's, somewhat mysterious and i write about it in the book he was he became sort of fixated on the movie saturday night fever i don't know if he would have said it was his all-time favorite movie but it it certainly was up there and he you know he uh you you can find his original review online if you search for it and like the first time he saw it he did not 
immediately call it uh, a masterpiece. You know, he didn't say this is the best film of the year of 1977. In fact, I think when he made his top 10 list that year, it was on the list, but it certainly was not number one. It may not have even been number two or three. But there was something about it that, like, spoke to him, and he saw it over and over again, 17 times, I think you said, and that sounds right. And, yep. yeah, he became, like, the the number one fan of that movie, the number one expert on that movie. And, um, yeah, when at one point they auctioned off, I think there were two suits. You know, everyone, if you've ever seen the movie, you know the famous scenes of John Travolta dancing. He's wearing this. Sure. White disco leisure suit and, you know, the, the suit itself became so iconic from the movie. And I think he used two suits to film the, the famous dance scenes. And so one of them was up for auction. And yeah, he paid, I think he might have even been bidding against, I'm trying to remember now who it was. Someone, you know, it was, it, it, it was, it was, it was Jane Fonda, according to your book. Okay. So there you go. Yeah. Jane Fonda wanted it. And, uh, you know, he outbid her for $2,000. And he held on to it for years and years, and then, uh, you know, uh, Gene Siskel was a, a shrewd negotiator. He loved to gamble. And I guess, you know, when John Travolta in the 90s had his career comeback with Pulp Fiction and Get Shorty, uh, even though he loved the movie and even though he uh, loved the, owning the suit, he saw an opportunity to make some money. And so at, yeah. when Travolta was really peaking in his career, he put it up for auction, and yeah, I think he sold it for some in the hundreds of thousands of dollars or $150,000, and so he turned, yes, a very tidy profit, and uh, I, I don't know where that suit is today, but yeah, something about that white suit and that movie really spoke to him as a, you know, he was from, she was from Chicago. He didn't grow up in Brooklyn or in New York, but uh, something about the story of that character and his dreams really, he, he, he related to it and he became, a, yeah, he was, something about it really appealed to him. There was another story in your book, which I, I'm going to leave it to the people to read the book, but I, I, I found the, the relationship, uh, between Roger Ebert and director Russ Meyer, a really interesting story in your book. Uh, Ebert uh, co-wrote the script of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. And what was interesting in your book, that that I that I, I, I it took me back is, is the fact that when that movie came out and it was a polarizing film it was a B exploitation movie some people really dug it some people hated but Roger uh, I mean Gene Siskel in a print review actually gave that movie zero stars uh, taking basically a shot at his rival uh, Ro Roger Ebert which I, I found very interesting but I'll leave that to people who read your book let's just talk about the pop culture status of uh, roger ebert and gene siskel and their first appearances uh, which i think really made them uh, pop culture icons and that was david letterman when they started to appear on the david letterman show i think their first appearance according to your book was uh in 1982 that really grew them leaps and bound in, in the public awareness. Talk about their appearances on David Letterman to Johnny Carson to all the morning shows and how that signified their relevance in pop culture. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that um, their appearances on Letterman, on Carson, later on on uh, Leno and Conan and all those shows, yes, they were a huge part of their appeal and a big reason why they became such fixtures on television through the the 80s and into the late 1990s they they were a great act you know and obviously the show itself that they were making whether it was sneak previews or at the movies or Siskel and Ebert it had its fans and it was watched by millions of people every single week in that form but it was watched you know primarily by movie fans and you know, them going on these, these talk shows, I think, uh, broaden their appeal, broaden their audience, introduce them to, uh, uh, other viewers who maybe weren't necessarily hardcore movie lovers, but maybe enjoyed them on these shows so much that they might then go out and seek out their show and watch it because they were so fun on those shows. And, uh, you know, that's another uh, YouTube rabbit hole, like kind of like what you were talking about before, that you can go down. Is you can watch them on those early Letterman appearances. You can watch them on Johnny Carson. It's all on online now. And they really stand out. I mean, uh, their appearances are very – they still hold up. They're great to watch. And I think the secret I, was uh, is that they, they – um, you know, they were – 
both on their show, on talk shows, their their brand, whatever you want to call it, was they were honest. They were always going to tell you what they really thought. You might disagree with Gene or with Roger or with both, but you always believed that what they were saying was what they truly thought about any movie, and they weren't going to sugarcoat anything for anyone. And the, the, I think the best place to see that in action was when they would do these talk show appearances. Because in some cases, they would be going on these shows and sitting next to the people who were making the movies, and they would tell them to their faces that they didn't like whatever movie they were uh, there to promote. You know, there's a really famous uh, incident where they were on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson right after Chevy Chase. And Chevy Chase was there to promote his new movie, Three Amigos. And then mm-hmm. they come out, and Johnny Carson asks them, well, is there, a, is there a worst movie this holiday season to go see, a, a worst Christmas movie? And with Chevy Chase sitting right there, Roger Ebert goes, I can't really recommend Three Amigos. That's not a very good movie. And, um, you know, this is, and he, and then Chevy Chase reacts, and the audience is reacting. And in that world of talk shows where everyone is always so friendly and, you know, there's kind of this phony atmosphere of everybody likes each other, everyone's happy to be there, every movie is so great. You know, here were these guys who kind of cut through all of that baloney and told it like it was. And if there was a movie that was bad, they said, this movie is bad, you shouldn't go see it. And that kind of, Honesty was so refreshing and unusual in that in that arena. And then, of course, they would often fight with each other on those shows, too, which brought another element of fun and drama to it. Because, again, everyone usually is so friendly and nice on those shows, and, and they sometimes got into these huge shouting matches on Letterman or Carson. And that was another thing that they were sort of it was unique to them. And so those shows were absolutely really important to establishing them as these, uh, yeah, these, these TV personalities beyond just being these two guys who talked about movies. Yeah, again, on the line with uh, Matt Singer, whose new book, uh, Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. Terrific book, a lot of insight, a lot of really fun tidbits. You know, I, I'll hawken back to a memory why I like Siskel and Ebert. So much. I could not wait for uh, some of their reviews. I'll give you a, a story. This is pre internet. In 1989, when Tim Burton's Batman was being released, uh, it was, I think, June 25th, 1989. I woke up that morning and I remember running to the newsstand because I couldn't wait to see the review in the Daily News and the in New, York, New York Post. And the Daily News, there's a film critic named Catherine, Kathleen Carroll who gave the movie three and a half stars. And then in the New York Post, it was David Edelston who gave it three and a half. But uh, I, I couldn't wait to see Siskel and Ebert's review. And I remember when uh, Ebert gave it a thumbs up and Siskel gave it a slight thumbs down. Those reviews for those movies for me had such relevance. And then I remember back in 1997 tuning in to see the guys on the show. And it was an early review. And I love when they did those early reviews. And it was an early review of James Cameron's Titanic. And they both raved about it. And I remember being so excited after their review to go want to go and want to see that film, I mean, their relevance in pop culture and what they had to say about film, to me, had such bearing uh, that, again, I think it's a great subject for a book. Now, let's just talk, we're wrapping up in the last six or seven minutes here, let's talk about when they they got their show uh, re-morphed re, uh, into the last syndication deal with, uh, with Buena Vista D- Disney, uh, and they're, they're at the height of their popularity. I think like 11 million people a week are tuning in to watching Siskel and Ebert um, in syndication. And then uh, I think it was, um, uh, I, I don't recall the year, I think it was 1993, Gene Siskel gets diagnosed with brain cancer. And really nobody knew the severity other than, according to your book, than his inner family. And even Roger Ebert did not know the severity. He went in and had surgery. Now, I, uh, to, to get to, to hopefully, uh, r- remove it, but it was not, it was, it was not fine. And, uh, basically Gene Siskel, uh, had a death sentence at that point. He still was doing tapings of, uh, Siskel. And Ebert, and I remember one passage in your book that really saddened me. He was doing spots on the CBS morning show, and one of his producers called him in and said, Gene, 
I don't think you want to be seen this way because if you look at the YouTube videos of his airings in that last year on Siskel and Ebert, you could see the difference in visual appearance and his delivery. Uh, expand on the fact that, that, that Gene got was diagnosed with cancer and the fact that he hid it from everybody other than his immediate family. I, I, I felt that was a very sad passage in your book. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you uh, talked earlier about how the story is kind of a, a tragedy, and uh, certainly the the ending is. I mean, it, these guys had such a, a great sort of ride through pop culture and television and Hollywood, and there's all these really fun stories about them working together, fighting together, squabbling, pranking each other. Um, it, that part is all sort of fun, but the the ending is really kind of unfortunate because... Yes, yeah, it is. Cisco, he was a he was a really young guy. He was only in his early fifties, and yeah, uh, yeah, he passed away. And he did keep the specifics of his illness secret from just about everybody, um, and that included the, you know the people who worked on Cisco and Ebert. That included the executive producers of the show, the executives at at Buena Vista Television who were syndicating the show, and it included Roger Ebert. He did not know how ill uh, uh, Gene was. And everyone knew he had been sick. He had had this um, illness. He had had surgery. Um, but they did not know exactly what it was at the time. They did not know the severity of it. And, yeah, if you watch those episodes back, you can see he, you know, he's clearly not in great health. But uh, no. kind of almost heroically, he like refused to stop working, even though he knew he knew he may not have told anyone else. He knew how ill he was and, and he knew his prognosis and his chances. And he kept on working uh, because he loved his job and, and thought it was worth doing and liked doing the show and kept working. And, yes. you know, his, his final episode was just a few weeks before he passed away. He told everyone that he was basically taking time off to recuperate. And Roger's widow, Chaz, told me that they thought that was the truth. And they only found yes. out like a day before he passed away. Just that that was a, essentially not the truth, that he he wasn't taking time off. He was dying. And, um, yeah, it's a really it's a really sad story. And supposedly Roger was devastated that this guy who, yeah, they didn't get along in the beginning, but they had grown to have this really intense personal relationship, certainly a very important yes. professional relationship. And uh, he did. He did not know until basically the very end that how how ill he was, and he was he was devastated by that. Yeah, and according to your book, when uh, Roger Ebert got married at the age of fifty, uh, him and Gene's bond really intensified in a very positive way. I just want to point out in your book, I think during your last uh, episode, Gene reviewed the movie Meet Joe Black, and he he looked into the camera and he said about the movie, which was really a reflection on what he was trying to say about himself. Love intensely and take your life seriously. I thought that was a very poetic, beautiful moment that I read in your book. Now, three years later, Roger Ebert's diagnosed with, uh, with, 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 with cancer. We know the story. He continued to do uh, uh, work diligently uh, and, and until he wound up passing away, did so many reviews, did so many good things. And I just want to point out before we wrap it up, you have a passage in the book uh, or a phrase that says, never meet your heroes. Could you expand on that? Because you did have a working relationship with Roger Ebert in the last years of his life. Could, could you please expand on that one, Matt? Well, I mean, that's the expression is, you know, never meet your heroes. But in, in the case of this story, uh, it wasn't true because I did work with Roger Ebert uh, a little bit towards the end of his life on the final version of what became, what had been the Siskel and Ebert show, uh, was hosted by different hosts at the time. Ebert was a producer on it. Uh, but he was great to work with. He was an amazing uh, uh, person. He was so encouraging and supportive of me uh, as a young critic at the time. And he did that for a lot of people. He was a really supportive a guy who really enjoyed championing um young critics and so yeah uh don't meet your heroes unless they're roger ebert and perhaps gene siskel who i sadly never got to meet because he passed away so young but yeah roger ebert was a a great uh supporter of young film critics i gotta tell you a lot of great stories in this book matt uh opposing thumbs how siskel and ebert changed movies forever written by matt singer matt you brought back a lot of great memories we really appreciate your time 
people listening in the view in the, in the uh, listening audience, go get this book. Whether you know who Siskel and Ebert were or you want to know who they were, well worth reading. Matt, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Movie Moments with Chuck Curry and Mike Rags. Download and listen to an archive show or be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts to hear our new episodes.